Well, let's turn again this morning to the letter of James, James chapter 4, verses 11 through 17. A shout of jubilation comes over the crowd as we find our way back to James. I know you've missed him, and, uh, and here we are. James chapter 4, 11 through 17. If you'd like to make use of the church Bible in front of you, please do so. It's important to have God's Word in front of you as we study and submit ourselves to the Word together. James 4, 11 to 17. As we turn there, we read these words, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. This is God's Word. Let's bow and pray together. Father, thank You for again giving us the great privilege and sober responsibility of sitting under the truth of Your Word. We've come not to hear the opinions of a mere man, but to hear the voice of God. And so we pray that as we come before You with our Bibles open, that You would speak to us with power and authority and clarity. You would cause us to wrestle with the big issues of life, You would transform us by Your grace. You would make us more like Your Son. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a book on the shelves in my study that I haven't really taken the time to read. There are actually several books on the shelves in my study that I haven't taken the time to read. You'll know if you ever come and see me in my office and ask, have you read all of these books? My standard reply is some of them twice which of course implies not all of them once, um, but this book is different. This book has a title that invites me. It's intriguing. I've always meant to read it, and just this past week I've picked it up and begun. The book is called, If You Could Ask God One Question. Isn't that inviting? Who here doesn't want to ask God at least one question? And the reason I say at least is that uh, so many of us here have multiple questions for the Lord. We all come from different perspectives, different backgrounds. For some of us, we haven't yet even trusted in Jesus because we feel like we have questions that have gone unanswered. Even those of us who have been following Christ for some time have struggles and issues that we haven't quite worked out, we haven't seemed to resolve. And those questions really run the gamut. They run the gamut from the innocent question of the child, why did God make volcanoes, as we considered in my house just this past week, 
to the puzzlement of the woman riddled by pain, if God is good, why is there so much suffering in the world? All the way down to the man who can't quite get around the exclusive claims of Jesus. How can Jesus be the only way, truth, and life? If you could ask God one question, what would it be? It's an interesting exercise. But I want to ask you this question. Imagine the tables were turned. And imagine rather than being able to ask God questions, God summoned you before his throne and had some questions for you. Would you be ready? I'd like to submit to you this morning that far more important than our questions for the Lord are his questions for us. That's to say it's more important for us as we wrestle with what it means to love and trust in and follow Jesus to have adequate answers to his questions than it ever is to pose questions before him. Not that it's wrong, but God's questions are a little bit more important. They're the kind of questions that sort of rub up against our personal authority, our the way that we live our lives as if we ourselves were God. It's the big idea of the passage in front of us from James as he asks two very pointed questions. Because what James does here in this passage is he exposes for each and every one of us the folly of pretending to be God and encourages us to submit to the Lord as the only lawgiver, the only judge, and the only sovereign. God, through James, has a couple of questions for you this morning. I want you to look down at the text, and we'll just point out those questions before we begin. They're plain as the nose on your face. Verse 12, who are you to judge your neighbor? Question number one, who are you? Question number two, verse 14, what is your life? These are the kinds of questions that God asks us. Who are you, and what is your life? I want to just dive in and and get right to the point this morning, and I want us all to ask ourselves the question, who are you, verses 11 and 12. Now that's a typical question, who are you? We can ask it a number of ways, and it really has everything to do with which word we emphasize. You know, you think about the young man who sees his future wife for the first time, and he says, who are you? You think of the person who meets with a high school friend who's changed drastically over the years, and they say, who are you? I don't even recognize you anymore. But then you think about that sort of accusation that comes when the question is asked like this. Who are you? Who do you think you are? That's the question that God through James is asking us here in verses 11 and 12. Who do you think you are? I mean, look at the way that the rest of the passage frames this out. Verse 12, there is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you, who do you think you are to judge your neighbor? Who are you? Now, it's not difficult to understand from the text here that any time I, as a believer, judge, stand in judgment over against another person, 
I'm immediately out of bounds. It's sin. It's wrong. There's no place for that in the Christian life. Faith is not alone. The person who trusts in Jesus will not be judgmental. But we run into a problem immediately in this way. Typically, what happens when we read passages in the Scriptures that talk about judging, we, we front load or we import our understanding, the cultural understanding of what judging is into the Bible. And so we have to ask ourselves the question this morning, is what we think about as judgmental what the Bible portrays as judgmental? And the only way that we can do that is to make our way back through these these verses. So again, verse 11. Let's start at the beginning. James says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Full stop. There's the command. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Anytime I as a Christian speak evil about another Christian, regardless of the circumstances, it is sin. But that begs the question, what does it mean to speak evil? Seems clear on the face of it, but what does it really mean to speak evil against a brother or sister in Christ? Now the word that's used here in this text is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament for a number of different ways that people sin with their mouths. For instance, it can be used about people who speak against proper biblical authority. Numbers chapter 21, verse 5, the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt, they say, to die in the wilderness? They question God's authority. Or Psalm 101, verse 5, it might be used to lay false charges against another person. Whoever slanders, same word, his neighbor secretly, God says, I will destroy. In the New Testament, it refers to Christians being persecuted, being falsely charged with wrongdoing. So Peter, 1 Peter 2, verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against, there's the word, you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. So we take all of these verses together and we understand that to speak evil against another brother or sister in Christ is speech about another person, which this is important, has as its aim and intent the harming of that individual. James says, anytime I use my words in an effort to harm another individual off the top, that's sin. Now I want you to see the basis for why this is so. James continues on to explain why we aren't to speak like this by saying the one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. Now James is passionate to make us people whose faith is real, those who do the law, those who follow and obey King Jesus. And his rationale is, when I speak evil against another brother or sister in Christ, I'm failing to follow and obey King Jesus because, in effect, I've placed myself above the law. The law says without any ambiguity, Leviticus 19.18, that you and I are to love our neighbor as ourselves. When I speak evil against, when I tear down, when I use my words to harm you, I do not love you, I hate you. It's completely out of bounds. 
And you understand the sort of arrogant attitude that underlines this. It's the sort of attitude that says, here is God's Word. You stand condemned. This law applies to you, but it definitely does not apply to me. I am the lawgiver and the judge in this context, and you stand condemned. James says this attitude is completely out of bounds. While we attempt to usurp the authority of God to judge, James says, verse 12, there is only one lawgiver and judge. It is God's authority that gives the law. And because the law is based on God's authority, judgment is God's prerogative. If you've ever read the Old Testament law, you'll know that from the jump, all of it is laid bare before us on the strength of God's authority. Read even the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, and it begins with, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. I am the Lord your God. I have the authority here. This is my law. And I have the prerogative to judge. There is one lawgiver and one judge, James says, who, this is key, is able to save and to destroy. Now, love us, this may be the most important aspect of our framing out what judgmentalism really is. The only lawgiver and the only judge is the one who is able to save and to destroy. Do you see that? Save, destroy. Save, condemn. Acquit, render the verdict guilty. So judgment, in terms of what the Scriptures teach, is speech that moves in the direction of harming someone and condemning them before God Almighty. It's condemnation. Now there are implications that flow from this that we have got to get in our minds. The first implication of this is that it is not judgmental to point out legitimate patterns of sin and destructive behavior in the life of another. You go to the doctor and they say, you know, bad news, you've got cancer. And your reply immediately is, why are you so judgmental? That's absolutely ridiculous. It is not judgmental to expose, as the Scriptures teach us, the deeds of darkness. Jesus was at pains in the Sermon on the Mount to teach us to judge not, but at the same time, He told us not to cast our pearls before swine and to identify false prophets by their fruit. That sounds judgmental, doesn't it? It is not judgmental to point out legitimate areas of sin in another's life. In our culture, any sort of moral or ethical evaluation of anyone or anything is immediately met with the charge of being judgmental. But as Daniel Doriani says in his, uh, his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus does not forbid the evaluation of others. He forbids the condemnation of others. Evaluation is, this is God's Word. I think you're out, out of bounds here. And I love you. Let's work on it. Condemnation is, this is the Word of God. You're out of bounds and you're on your own. That's judgmental. The second implication of this is that it is not judgmental to hold that real sin has real consequence 
in real time and space, in the church, and in society. That is not judgmental. Doug Moo, a commentator on James, says James is thinking of judging in terms of determining, again, the ultimate spiritual destiny of individuals. James is not prohibiting, listen, the proper and necessary discrimination that every Christian should exercise, nor is he forbidding the right of the community to exclude from its fellowship those it deems to be in flagrant disobedience to the standards of the faith or to determine right and wrong among its members. Holding that real sin has real consequence in real time and space is not judgmental. When I was in seminary, I took a class. You had to take the class. It was personal evangelism. Great class. And the, the professor had a teaching assistant who was earning his PhD, and he got to do one of the lectures. His lecture was on discipleship. What do we do when someone trusts in Jesus? How do we follow up with them? What are the next steps? And so the man was telling his own story of conversion and early days of discipleship. And he told this story about how when he first became a Christian, he went to his pastor and he said, I've trusted in Jesus. What do I do? The pastor handed him a King James Bible, and he says, take this, read it, and come back to me once you've done that. So the man went home, and in a week's time, he read the King James Bible from cover to cover. He goes back to his pastor, says, I've read the King James Bible, what do I do next? The pastor said, here's a new King James Bible. It's like the King James, but a little bit easier to understand. Take this home, and read it, and come back to me when you've done that. Goes home, one week read the New King James Bible, goes to his pastor, I read the New King James Bible, what do I do now? Pastor hands him an NIV. This is easier still. Take this home, read this, and when you've done that, come back and see me. He goes home, one week, goes back to his pastor, says, what do I do now? The pastor says, here's a new living translation. And at that point, the man said, I figured out what my pastor was up to. Now you hear that story, and I'm almost positive. Some of you are here going, there's no way that's true. I mean, just based on time alone, who, who has the time to read the Bible cover to cover in three weeks? But this man, in the first month of knowing Jesus, read the Bible front to back three times. Who has time to do that? I'll tell you exactly who has time to do that. Somebody who gets converted in jail. Somebody who comes to faith in a small church, gathering in a prison. All he had was time. Now the point of that story isn't to tell you you should go home really and in the next week you should read the Bible cover to cover. If you want to do that, praise God. I will not try and stop you. But the point of that story is you know what did not happen when he became a believer? They did not throw open the jail cell and say, you're free. Out of some mistaken understanding of what it means to be judgmental or extend grace. No, his real sin had real consequence. That's not judgmental. That's sensible. So the final implication here, or the final application you might say, is that it's judgmental to speak evil against another brother or sister in Christ or person in society with the aim and intent of harming that individual by passing a verdict of condemned upon them. That's judgmental. Now, even though we're couching what it means to be judgmental so severely, that doesn't mean that we don't fall out of bounds on this all the time. We love to play judge, jury, and executioner. And very often, those moments when we come to a brother or sister and say, this is the Bible, I think you're out of bounds, the real consequences, real time for this action, we leave it there. And you're on your own. 
That's wrong. The Lord says through James, who are you? Because the actual judge, the actual lawgiver, we're told in this passage, is able to save and to destroy. Save and destroy. And what makes this judge so immensely beautiful is that he willingly becomes a man. Paul says he was born of a virgin. He became a man born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. In other words, Jesus submitted himself perfectly to the law of God and never sinned. And yet, in spite of that, he was destroyed on the cross for your sin and mine so that in rising again, we might be saved. That's what the real lawgiver and judge does for those who will humbly trust in Him. And so James says, who are you? Don't you realize how the Lord operates? Why are you being that way? Why are you so condemning? The Lord has shown you grace. That does not mean don't point out actual sin or to hold that there are consequences for actions, but it does mean that in a society and a culture that has made it a casual expression to talk to people and send them to the place of eternal separation from God, we reject the attitude of condemnation. Who are you? Secondly, while we're on that, what is your life? I mean, if the question, who are you, brushes up against the tendency that we have to try and sit in the seat of judgment over others, saving and condemning, this question, what is your life, absolutely destroys the sort of illusion of control that we have so often. Look at the way that James writes in verse 13, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Verse 14, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? I want to ask you this question. Is the problem here in this passage planning? I mean, is, it, is the problem with these people the fact that they're planning their days out? I mean, planning is big business. We have financial planners. We have retirement planners. We have people who plan everything. Party planning committees. We plan all the time. So is planning really the problem? Is the problem the desire to make money? To earn a profit? Is this a condemnation of capitalism? No. And the problem isn't even necessarily the way that the question or the, the, the statement is worded. The problem is the attitude that it reveals that my life is lived under my control and my destiny is fixed and determined by me. Now this is the attitude that we imbibe everywhere from our own hearts to our teachers to our culture. We can be who we want to be and when we want to be it. This is the attitude that's revealed in the poem Invictus. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. James says, really? You really believe that? I mean, you think for a moment that you're in control? The Bible teaches from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 that God alone is the only sovereign over everything that happens. There's not a blade of grass that grows apart from the will of the God of the Bible. He is sovereign over the day of your birth, the circumstances of your life, and the moment of your death. I'm the master of my own fate. 
You and I only have to watch the weather for one week to realize how unreliable forecasting is. Instead, James says, you ought to say, what you really should be saying is, if the Lord wills, if the sovereign God has it in his plan, listen, look at the Bible. He says, we will live. If the Lord wills, we'll live. Not we're going to go make money. We'll live. We'll breathe. If it's God's will, I'll have the next moment, the next minute, the next hour, the next day. If God wills, but I don't know if he wills. Now, I almost never, you'll know this at this point, I almost never stand up here and tell stories about my life. And the reason for that, if you're wondering, is that I feel like you need to know more about the Bible than you need to know about me. That's a a deep conviction that I hold. But I want to let you know that this very notion of the fact that our lives are unpredictable is one of the things that the Lord used to draw me to Himself. When I started college, I thought I was going to change the world through politics like every other 18-year-old kid, right? I thought I was going to change the world through politics. That was my jam. Politics, music, parties, that was what I was about. I had a good friend. Her name is Kara. Now, Kara and I were really, really good friends, and the reason for that was is that I dated Kara's roommate. Kara dated my roommate. So the four of us were together all of the time. One night, weeknight, I'm lying in bed. I didn't feel like going out. I had an early night. I start getting texts from Kara. Kara is texting me over and over again, Mike, I'm bored. Let's do something. Let's hang out. Let's get the guys together. You know. And I was so tired, I just ignored the texts. The next morning, I got up for work, got ready, started driving to work. My roommate, Joe, Kara's boyfriend, called me and said, will you come to my parents' house before you go to work? That Joe was not given to drama, he wasn't high maintenance, so this was out of, out of character. I walk into Joe's house, and as I walked in, I'll never forget, Joe had two words for me, and they've haunted me ever since. You know what those two words were? Kara died. 21 years old, on her way to class, brain aneurysm, hits one wall, hits the next, gone. Now, what we do, loved ones, in order to mask the sort of sobering reality that that is, is we bandy about a bunch of cliches like, you know, life's just too short, or boy, she just went too soon, or if we're into Billy Joel, only the good die young. We throw around these cliches when James won't let us get away with that. Instead, he puts his finger in our chest and he says, What is your life? It's a mist. It's a vapor. It's the steam off the top of a cup of coffee. It's temporary. Now, if if you're a believer here this morning, this should be a sobering wake-up call that all of my plans are under the, the, the watchful eye of the God who has written out history. But... If you're not a Christian here this morning, the question is, what's your plan? You think you're going to receive Jesus after the service? You're going to receive Jesus tomorrow, next Sunday, next month, next week, next year? You really think you're in control of that? You come in here this morning with this attitude, it's not about if, it's a matter of when. 
Well, what happens when this afternoon you are called before the only lawgiver and judge and he asks you, what is your life? What do you say? What's your exit strategy? And at that very moment, what happens about all of your, your, your self-centered sort of sovereign planning of your own life, the way that you thought that your best laid plans were etched in stone, what happens the very moment when you stand before the Lord and you say, Lord, look, I was going to get to it. It's not a matter of if, it was a matter of when. And then the Lord looks at you and says, don't you know I'm sovereign over when? Don't you know I hold time in my hands? Don't you know that all of your days were in my hands? All your days were written in my book before you even lived one of them? Don't you realize that I'm in control and not you? See, this really only leaves us with one of two options. We're either confronted by the question of God Almighty, what is your life? And we go on, as the text says, and boast in our arrogance that I am, in fact, as the poem says, the master of my own fate. Or I submit to the one who's able to save and to destroy. This is the glory of the gospel. That what God has done through James is to put His finger on the pressure points of our lives, those areas in which we attempt to play God. I have the authority to judge. I have the power to map out my days. God comes in His grace and He knocks us down a few pegs so that in humility we might say, who am I? I'm a great sinner. Who is Jesus in the words of John Newton? He is a great Savior. And I have the joy, the privilege, the grace right now, if I will, to bow my knees before the sovereign God of the universe. And it's only when I've done that It's only when I've done that that life is no longer a mist. Yes, we all die. Real sin has real consequence. We will all draw our last breath. But for the one who trusts in Jesus, as the hymn writer says, death will be the door to life. Just a couple questions for you this morning. They're simple, really. Only you can answer them, though. Who are you? I mean, really, who do you think you are? And before the sovereign and almighty and eternal God, what is your life? Only you can answer those questions. I pray that you would do so correctly and that you would do so now. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your gentle questioning. What an effective way to make the point to us this morning. Who are You? What is Your life? 
Lord, we confess before You this morning that each and every one of us has played the judge. I confess that myself. That I have so often attempted to destroy even those whom You have saved. That I go about my business day to day so often without reference to You, thinking that my best laid plans are etched in stone. Yet I graciously hear you remind me you are not in control. And even in the face of the conviction that this brings, it brings all of us a sense of wonder at your amazing love and mercy because in all of these things you promise not to condemn the one who trusts in Jesus, but rather to save. You've promised that all of your plans for your people work together for good those whom you have called. And so we pray for each and every one of us this morning that we would find our rest in Christ. Father, we pray this morning for the one who's been coming to First Baptist Church for years and years and years. And it's always been next week, next month, next year, I'll get around to it. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Lord, I pray that you would impress on that person's heart that when is not in their control that now is the time of salvation, that today is the day of salvation, that right now, even as they sit in the pew, they would say, Lord Jesus, please save me. Lord, thank you for the washing of your word as it cleanses and transforms. Pray all that we have in Jesus' precious name. Amen.